Hi, welcome to the I Am Lake Worth podcast. This is Carl Stovland, your host. I'm the guy who put together the I Am Lake Worth photo project in Lake Worth, of course. And as an offshoot of the photography project, we've created this podcast. Having the show at Hatch 1121 right now, I have the opportunity to do some artist interviews, and we're calling them Artists at the Gallery Getting Coffee. All apologies to Jerry Seinfeld which has been sponsored by Common Grounds Coffee. And we are happy to have a crowd here today. And my, my guest for today's interview is Joyce Brown. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Listen to that applause. It's a beautiful yes, thing. <laughs> I applaud you. <laughs> so Joyce is one of the very first people I met when I came to Lake Worth, I think Mary in the audience, who's been in the audience for I think every single one of these, um, was the first person, but I met Joyce at the gallery pretty early on. Um, I think it's the first time I went to Jazz on J Street is yes. where we first met, and we had, I knew right away we were kindred spirits. I mentioned Pete Seeger, and yes, Pete Seeger. it went right from there, so it was <laughs> all good. So the way this works, Joyce, is we expand on the question that I asked you when I took your picture, which was what makes Lake Worth special, you get a chance to talk about that. And then we're gonna chit chat back and forth for a little while, easy little conversation. We'll talk about Lake Worth, we'll talk about art, we'll talk about whatever comes up, and we'll go from there. Okay. And the way we end it is with the questions that James Lipton used on Inside the Actor's Studio. So we do a little 10 question thing that's okay. kind of fun. And I've only started doing that last week. So Shannon, who's in the audience, was my first victim was for that. Was it hard, Shannon? It's lovely. Okay. He actually was pretty good. He set the bar pretty high. Okay, so with that, Lake Worth is special because dot, dot, dot. Lake Worth is special because there are so many incredible people in this town that make up every kind of walk of life and they all blend together beautifully. They, um, they fight, they make up. Look at Tom there, he's just, people like Tom. He walks around town and makes a record of everything that happens in this town so nobody will ever forget anything. Mary, she makes these wonderful, she gets books for everybody and every kid in the entire region is now reading because of Mary. Shannon, all I had to do was say, come into my gallery, Shannon, and he brought these beautiful, beautiful little paintings in there. Pedro, he walks into the, into the studio and he makes things, and his things are so amazing that, I mean, he just doesn't make bowls. He makes shoes that look like real shoes. He make, you know, it's just an incredible place. Lake Worth High School, filled with children that you melt, you, you melt with every time you, you interact with them. They're, 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 they're wonderful, kind, talented kids who do their best to do anything they can. Reggie down at For the Children, you know, which is a, a, a Haitian school. She, she produces some of the best kids and they are so well educated because of her and, and they have such incredible parents who care about them and they'll come out and do anything. I mean, they dance their hearts out, they sing their hearts out and they're just amazing, amazing people. The, the Compass, look at Compass in our town. We have, you know, an LGBTQ community here that is caring, kind, just, takes care of everybody and, 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 and everybody blends and meshes so well. Who did I forget? The Guatemalan Mayan Center 
You and, left out Marshall. Uh, my, did I leave out Marshall? Marshall has <laughs> so many Facebook pages that keep up with everything. He lights the streets. He makes sure that Pedro has a place to be, and the minute Pedro's stuff is out, he brings everyone in town to his table to make sure that they see everything that he does. He is an extraordinary human being, Marshall. There you go. Oh, I didn't get this guy oh, back Oh, he's here. hiding in the back. He's hiding in the back. He, well, listen, he only has another seven years to go in this town. But he and that's will, Jose. Uh, Jose, and he will make it an extraordinary town. He brings Mayan culture in here, and he makes it rock. And he, he's really incredible, too. So look, this entire room is filled, and you. Oh, my gosh, you bring it all together through, through the, the visions of, of who we all are. This was easy. This was, I wanted to meet people, and it just took off from there. Oh, it's amazing. And, and there's still another tier to come, I would think. So. There is. We've talked about doing um, the third version will include a bunch of groups, so that will be We Are Lake Worth. And it'll be all walks of life. Um, as you and I were talking earlier, yeah. the deeper I get into this project, the more I want to get into the nooks and crannies of the city and the people that we don't get to see every day. It's been fun seeing the people that we know every single day, but now let's give some people that we don't necessarily know that well, give them a megaphone. Let's, let's let everybody shine. So that's where we're going with that. Now I had two thoughts on your answer. The first was I asked for one thing, you gave me about 10, oh, okay. which is awesome. I'm superfluous. We have a lot of people who are superfluous here, which is great. I mean, I think the more the merrier and the more content, the better. The second thing is what you described as a family. And I think you hit the nail square on the head. Lake Worth is a family and that's what makes it work. And that's what makes it so attractive to people when they see it for the first time and want to move away from their houses and travel 1500 miles and buy a house in this little town. You know, we have, um seven people since we opened the studio who have bought in Lake Worth because we're here and because they, they just fell in love with the place. So uh, that's really exciting to me because, you know, it just keeps growing and, you know, more and more people that I really like. You know, well, and I around. think the people that, that get here through that method are the people that become the next generation of the people who are active here. Yeah. You know, they jump in, they get involved yeah. right away and become part of the fabric of the city pretty quickly because what they see here is what they, what's been missing. You know, I've said this before in the podcast that I lived in Suffern, New York for 13 years, and I feel that unless you were born there, you're never gonna get into the club. Here, the club is wide open. It's, you wanna move here? You wanna be part of the city? Great, here's a broom, get to work. <laughs> We've got plenty to do. Well, you know, it's, a, it's, it it's, it's a real community, and if, if you drive around to, you don't find neighborhoods like this. You find gated communities or open communities or, but people are so distant from each other. You walk into the downtown here, which is why I love the downtown, and people greet you on the street. And, and if you're new to the town, you're soon not new to the town. You, you, you're sort of absorbed, it's spongy. And, and you, you become part of this town pretty fast, I think. Yeah, if, if that's what you want, it can happen incredibly quickly. There is no earning process. You know, the, the door is open to getting involved and being involved. And a big part of that is our neighborhoods. I mean, my yeah. first week here, we went to a neighborhood association meeting and that's Eden Place. And that really got us off on the right foot. And Lake Worth is full of these neighborhoods, 
neighborhood associations that compete with each other tooth and nail on July 4th in the boat race and the parades. And there's so much good camaraderie between the neighborhoods and that lifts us up. I mean, I think that that is, that piece is what I felt was missing in other places that we've lived. And you're certainly never gonna get that in a condo complex or a gated community, or at least it's very hard to build there. That's true, and when you're attacked in Lake Worth, all of your friends come and fight for you. And that's the other really, really, really good thing. You know, it's, it's a small it's, town it's, and we stick up for our friends. Yeah, you really do. Whether you, you agree with them or not, you just come out and make sure everyone's okay. And that's, that's special, it's really special. Now, I wanna swing back to my first comment about Pete Seeger when I oh, met Pete you Seeger. because how can I interview you without talking about Pete? Let's talk about Pete. Now, my point of view of Pete is hero worship from a kid who's about, uh, the first time I met him was maybe this because I was 10. Mm -hmm. um, would have been 1978. The Clearwater oh, had late. been oh, yeah. launched by two years. His environmental sloop on the Hudson. You're so young. I am. I'm a young one, yeah. Um, <laughs> But in 1976, yeah. the Clearwater hit the, was finished building and had its first trip. Um, all of the school districts in our county would go to West Point when you were in fifth grade and spend a day on the Clearwater. If Pete was available, he'd show up at the dock. There's the old guy with the banjo. We didn't know who he was, but my teacher, Mrs. Roberts, was smitten. She's like, Pete's here, Pete's here. And How could you not be? <laughs> We spent the entire day, he showed all the kids the banjo, he sang songs with us, taught us some of the shanties, and I never forgot that. And everyone that I know that went to school in that area all remembers that, and I became a bit of a groupie. Anytime he was playing, me and my buddy Nigel would always go and see him. I didn't have a, you know, I couldn't count him as a friend, I didn't know him, but you certainly had a different experience I did, I did. and a very fortunate experience. So let's hear well, a little bit about that. Okay, well, you know, I have to say that 70 years ago, the, we had a, uh, an incident. My, my parents were friends with Marge Guthrie before she was Marge Guthrie. They were, they were all politically active together. They were, they were fighters for peace, social justice, civil rights long before Martin Luther King was a gleam in his parents' eyes. They, they were, you know, with Paul Robeson and Islanda Robeson. They spent a lot of time with them. There was a, an incident in Peekskill, New York, when Paul Robeson Gate went to give a concert there. And uh, the fascists and the Klan came out to drive him out of Peekskill. So the trade unions, and my father was a, 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 um, an organizer in the shipyards, and he, w he desegregated with he two of his friends, two of whom were black, and he and another were white. They desegregated some shipyard in, in Pennsylvania. And when this came up, they all got in their cars and went down to what they said was hold the line. And guess who my father brought with him? His four or five-year-old daughter, Joyce, in the car. And we all went down to Peekskill. And this was probably the first time I ever saw Pete on the stage. Howard Fast was there. Pete was there. The, all of the weavers were there. The almanac singers were there. They were up on the stage with Pete. So I saw him there. And he was absolutely amazing. Of course, Paul was there. And, and 
to be in the presence of Paul Robeson was probably the most amazing thing in my entire life. I mean, he was, he was this incredible, incredible person. Well, leaving there, we get into cars, and all I can remember is being crouched in the back of the cars, because as we went out, they had formed a gauntlet, and they were bashing in our cars. They were bashing the windows. The, the Klan and the fascists were out, and they actually tried to kill everybody. So I was in a car crouched on the floor with a glass in my hair, and that's all I could remember was I had this glass coming in at me. And, and, and my father and one of the, one I think was Eddie Hudson, was driving the car out, and they, the others were on the line holding back the fascists so that we could get through. And this was my introduction to Pete. Uh, now, what's really amazing is, no, we didn't coordinate this, other than the fact that when you came in, we chatted about we the fact that we knew Pete, because every time we see each other, we, yeah. somehow it comes up. But you have now given us a first-person account of what is the opening of Pete Seeger's autobiography, How Can I Help But Sing? Or I think that's the title. I might have paraphrased yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I remember being gripped by that story of that day in Peekskill. Oh, in Peekskill? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that well, there, There's event. actually and a record output. Yeah, I was there. And my mother did not appreciate that, but that was okay. That was a very scary time. And he should have known better than to take a little kid, but there were other little kids there too. I mean, I wasn't the only one. We were all, but it was a very, very scary time. Well, we, I grew up in hiding a lot you know, because my parents were politically active. A lot of my friends' parents were in prison uh, during the McCarthy area, the McCarran Acts and things like that. So we were outside of the city, but there was a group of us, we were called Red Diaper Babies, and none of our neighbors, <laughs> None of our neighbors would talk to us because the FBI would come around and knock on the doors, and uh, tell you know and say, look, these are all communists. You can't talk. And so we were all kind of ostracized. The teachers in Philadelphia were being fired. We were walking through neighborhoods as a group, and the FBI would follow us and say, tell us that our parents were going to die like the Rosenbergs. And we knew we couldn't answer the door if someone banged on the door, etc. But we had each other, and guess who came to sing to us and to talk to us? Pete Seeger. So, wow. so you know, so we had that interaction with him. Um, and, and with others, but, and another guy named, named Earl Robinson, who wrote the ballad, he, he used to t tour with um, Paul Robeson. He wrote Joe Hill, if you know that song, he wrote Ballad for Americans, he wrote The House I Live In. So, I, you know, and I went to all the Pete Seeger concerts, you know. And then we reached a point in the early late 70s, early 80s, when a group was formed called the People's Music Network. And Pete had been blacklisted for years, and there, was, there were very few people that would, would allow him in. And, uh, and I, I was also part of the Philadelphia Folk Song Society, and my ex-husband and friends formed the Philadelphia Folk Song Society. And they wouldn't let Pete in. They wouldn't let him in to sing. And so, um, How do you have a folk song society that keeps well, Pete on the outside? There, were, there, were, there was a right wing to this and a left wing to it. So, and they said that what Pete was doing wasn't folk music. So we formed a group in Philadelphia. There were a bunch of us called Swords into Plowshares. And we formed a music production company. And we produced four major concerts a year. And we joined what was called the People's Music Network. Now, my friend Diane and I, they, they had this ticket on an airplane that you could get. And for $400, you could get on and off the airplane all over the country. 
So we went from folk music place to folk music to see how we could to form the best folk music organization we could form. So we went to Chicago, we went to San Francisco, we went to Los Angeles, we went to New Orleans, we went everywhere, and we visited with all of these major performers who all became friends of ours. So, so Utah Phillips, you know, became a really good friend of ours. I told you about Chuck, Chuck, um, Chuck Mitchell, who Joni Mitchell's original mm -hmm. husband, who, you know, who, who became really good friends with us. Um, Tom Paxton was a really good friend of ours, and our very first and our, our our theory for making a concert was we needed to draw an audience, and we needed to have local performers and famous performers. And these famous performers weren't being booked anywhere, so we would we would get a big movie theater and we would get a stage and we'd get in there and we'd do this. So our you know our first people from the People's Music Network came and we did this. So then we go to the People's Music Network and who's running the whole thing but Pete? So I said to Pete, "Can you sing the song in contempt?" He said, "Only if you sing it with me." So we sang the song in contempt together, and from then on, we were fast friends. And he would come to Philly, and I like to say he would sleep on my living room floor. And the reason Pete would sleep on my living room floor is that everybody else wanted to come to my house and be surrounded, all of these teenagers in particular at the time. Now, this is 30, 40 years ago. So Pete would come, and they'd all sit around and talk all night long on the floor. And if they didn't have a bed, he wasn't going to have a bed. <laughs> so he slept on the floor with all of these kids who absolutely surrounded him. His sister Peggy and Ewan McCall came and stayed with me. And the neatest part about that was that Peggy's sister Penny dropped in as a surprise with Elizabeth Cotton and her grandchild. And I fed them soup in my kitchen as they sat and chatted about their life as children. Now, Peggy Seeger is probably my most favorite performer in the whole world. I want to be an engineer. I want to be an engineer, yeah, but among everything. But she wrote some of the strongest prose test songs in the whole world. Now, the thing about Pete was there wasn't a march he didn't go on. There wasn't a march. So when other people finally met him, he was already into the environmental movement. But he did the whole Spanish Civil War, and he, we Shall Overcome came, you know, came from Pete and, and Guy Carawan. Um, in, in, and, and they actually copywrote the song and taught it to the civil rights movement, but nobody, nobody can charge to sing We Shall Overcome because of Pete. You can sing it anywhere you want, and nobody can make money on it because it belongs to everybody. He went down south over and over and over again to do things. I would get a note. Now, Pete liked to send out postcards with little banjos on them, he says. He, he sends me a card. And I would, we had a whole sound system. So we would do, we would do sound for anything that came into town. And we, we, you know, we would produce it. We also started a coffee house called the Blushing Zebra because it was black and white and red all over, which reflected <laughs> exactly who we were. So uh, uh, Abby Hoffman's up at Peach Bottom. Would you get a sound stage up for Abby Hoffman and bring some performers? And all I had to do was put a call out, and I could get performers from anywhere. They'd come in from New York. They'd come in from Washington. If I needed them up with Abby Hoffman, they would go up there. And when the Great Peace March came through Philadelphia, Pete told Peter Yarrow, who was leading it, they marched all the way across country, going from town to town. 
he told them to get in touch with us, and we put up the five stages in Philadelphia. And then when we, they went on to Washington, we went with them to Washington, and we did all the stages in Washington for the Great Peace March. So you know, that's what we did with Pete. And he, he I, I told you this, but I, I, when people used to say, I believe in God, I would say, well, I believe in Pete Seeger. You know, and, um, and Toshi would say to us, he drops his socks on the floor and he doesn't pick them up. Do not worship <laughs> Pete Seeger. He is not an idol. And that's exactly the way he was. There, there, to me, I mean, he could have been tested any way, shape, or form. You could tell I loved him. He, he, he never failed. He never, he, never, he never did something that was terrible. You know, he, he loved all people. He treated all people well. He never said no to anybody. If you needed him, he was Almost there. Almost to his detriment. Almost to his detriment. We, the concert we did here, it was going to be a tribute, and then he died, and it was a memorial. And um, I have his voice on tape, so we introduced a bunch of the songs in the concert. But it was this concert for Carry It On, because he, he was major in the labor movement. He was major in the labor mm -hmm. movement. And so this was, these, were, this was the, these were the songs of the labor, labor movement. But when we did it in Philly, and that was in 1986, I think, he was in Nicaragua. So we got Richie Havens to come in and do this for us. And we had people writing and saying, we thought we were coming to a Richie Havens concert. If this concert hadn't been so great, we would have been really, really mad at you. <laughs> but, but we did that. Now what happened, the reason we had to do this concert was because Pete wrote this book and Simon and & Schuster printed it on a non-union press. So they bankrupted themselves to reprint it. They took every penny they had to reprint this book on a union press, and that was Pete Seeger. And so, yes, I loved him. <laughs> so I can, one of my friends, Luke Gordon, who I know from New York, and his father was, um, Luke actually is a big union guy, that's his job now. He yeah. works for the United Steelworkers. Okay. Um, and he comes from a family that was union and labor, and he came from the New York side of that movement. His treasured possession is one of those postcards that Pete left on his front door that was, I stopped by and you weren't here, talk to you soon, old banjo. Pete with a banjo, <laughs> banjo on it. Yeah. So I've yeah. seen a few of those and they are really special. Um, you're right, he, like I said, almost to his detriment, he would do things for people, but the other thing I noticed is that, obviously a fierce independent streak. He was, in the last couple of years of his life, I went to a show at um, a Unitarian Universalist church in Blooming Grove, New York, and he was there. And um, I tried to help him by trying to carry his banjo to his car. He wanted nothing to do with it. He was happy to take his banjo all by himself, which at that point weighed almost as much as he did. It was a big banjo case. Yeah. The other, the one memory I'll share with Pete, because this is a really special, well, two. Um, that that night was an MLK event, um, so to be in the audience with the whole crowd singing "We Shall Overcome" with Pete Seeger in a darkened auditorium was heart-stopping. It was really stopped me in my tracks. And the other event I wanted to talk about was I was fortunate enough to see Pete with Peggy in Woodstock, New York. They, she was in town. They did a show together for 
one of the colleges, yeah. I don't remember which one, um, Briarcliff or it, it really doesn't matter, but the two of them together, and one of my favorite pictures I've ever taken is Pete had just finished a song and Peggy was doing one of hers and he's off to the side, sitting kind of hands on his knees with his banjo between his legs, the neck up here, and he's just watching Peggy happy as a clam. And I love that look. I love that photograph, and that was a really special night. And I have to tell you, he was—he appreciated everybody. He really did. The the other thing I, I, I sort of wanted to mention because it ties into Pete a lot too is I don't know if you know I was trained by Martin Luther King in 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 how to organize. No, I didn't know okay. that. So I was in Philadelphia. You are a living, breathing national treasure. No, I'm not. But they were. No, I'm not. But they were. Um, I, was I, in, I beg to differ, but go ahead. I, I was in Philadelphia as a teenager, and again, all of our parents were being arrested, and we were in hiding. And when I was 13 years old, 1957, um, we had, and, and Pete had been coming in. Pete said to our parents, your kids have to be kids, too. They can't just be. They just can't just be political beings. They have to be kids too. So they have to learn to sing and dance and things like that. And we had, we had bandstand in Philadelphia. So every, and bandstand, um, that was before Dick Clark even, was on, was on Market, at Market Street. And we would go down there every day and pick at them because they wouldn't allow black kids into the bandstand, although black performers were allowed to go in. And we, from the time I was 11, we were picketing bandstand. So we had a Y in Philadelphia and a YWCA, and the we had the first African American director, you know, of all the Ys. And we also had, you know, we were also picketing Woolworths too in those days. And we were with Core, and you know, we were doing all of these things. And King wanted to. Or we had had the 1954 Supreme Court decision on segregated schools and nothing was being done in the country. So King, and this was after Rosa Parks in Birmingham and the bus boycott, and they wanted to organize in 58 a march on Washington for integrated schools. And so they had, they had no one to organize it around the country. So they would go around and they would find groups and Pete told them to come to us. And they came to Philadelphia and we were a group called Teens Ahead at the Y or Preteens Ahead at the Y. And they came, Ralph Albernethy and Martin Luther King came and they spent two weeks with us training us in nonviolence. They were, they were old men then, I think they were 27 and we were kids, they were, <laughs> I mean, who worked with old men like that in those days. And there was a young man, an old man named Bill Davis and I cannot track him down, I've been trying for years. And, he, and they put him in charge of us and they gave us each a job to do. And my friend Lois Rivish and I were in charge of the buses for the city of Philadelphia. And we were able to organize. I, I, I was 13 years old. This is how I know teens can organize, that teens can do these things. I was in charge of the buses with Lois. We hired 10 buses. There were 50 people on each bus. We got them. I think I still have sketchbooks with names of the people in them who went on these bus buses. We had a comic book on each bus for everybody about Rosa Parks that, that went down. And there were 10,000 people at that march. Now today, we had 8,000 people at the Women's March here. That's nothing now. That was the first march that had been held 
since the McCarthy era and since maybe the bread, poor people's bread marches in the past. And we gathered from all over the country. There were 10,000 of us. And I remember watching Harry Belafonte and his wife with a ponytail coming off of the buses, you know, right next to us. And we did this and we were trained and we never stopped. None of us ever, some of them are under the, the, the turf now. I mean, I've lost so many friends, but none of us have ever stopped because, because we believed in it and we've never turned back. So, you know, the, that I go out on picket lines almost every week now is I have to because we're fighting something that we fought all of our lives that we thought we didn't have to fight for anymore. You know, I thought, I thought, you know, we worked in SNCC, we worked in CORE, we worked in the Student Peace Union. Joni Baez was there, she would come. Uh, Julian Bond was in New Jersey in those days. He would come over and work with us. There was a whole core of people. So from a series of what I consider really unfortunate events, because the Rosenbergs were killed and because our parents were in prison, so many incredible people came together and fought for peace and social justice in this world and really, really worked to make this world a better place. My friend Norma was on the Freedom Rides, and I was telling you, these songs that we sing were songs that kept people strong. They got off of the buses, and they were beaten by clubs, and they were hauled off to jail. And what kept them going were them singing together throughout the jails and, and, and echoing back and forth and keeping each other alive and keeping each other going. These songs are powerful tools of every movement we've ever had. And they were, they were the, the tools of the peace movement. They were the tools of the civil rights movement. People went down south and they were beaten and they were brutalized. And then they sang, we ain't afraid of your jails because we want our freedom. They did that and that's what kept them going. And Guy Carawan, who ran the school, the, the Highlander School in the Carolinas, trained all of these civil rights workers right then and there. Um, it, was, it was an amazing period to live through with amazing heroes and sheroes. And my role was to run the mimeograph machine often, you know, to do the dirty work. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that it happened. So I wasn't one of these heroes. I was just there, you know, part of it. But I was so lucky that I had all of these folks passed through my life and it's because my parents did it too mm -hmm. you know the you know i you know i sat on paul robeson's lap and his hand was this big because i was this little <laughs> i was this little um how lucky can i be how lucky can anybody be to have had that in their lives you know and who am i i'm a nobody you know i'm really a nobody but all of these people surrounded me and i and how do you give up you know, you don't give up, you just keep going. Faith Petrick, um, there was a song written by this woman named Irene Paul for a magazine called Masses and Mainstream. And it's called The Grandmother's Battle, Battle Cry, which I do often. And she wrote it when she was 70. She, she sang it when Faith was 74. She sang it to us and I was, what, 40 at the time. And Faith died on the picket line at 98 with her guitar strung across her back. But it says, we'll march again, confound them all, don't quibble at my age. I'll shield you with my brittle bones, I'll nourish you with rage. And it was about her, you know, I fought to staunch Korea's blood, I fought for Vietnam, I fought, fought to stop the napalm, I fought to stop the bombs. I've marched and marched and marched, oh Lord, I'm sure I've done my due. I've marched since I was barely 10 and now I'm 72. And now I'm going to be 75 and I'm still marching. 
And I'm scared to death for this world, and I'm scared to death for the children behind me because of what's going on in this world. I'm really scared that LBGTQ kids are suffering, and and you know they, you know, and, and the army is is, you know, is not treating transgendered people well, and and. You know, my friends in the Haitian community are being told what their country is about. And my friends in, in the Latin, Latinx, I hear it, we're calling it now, so there's no gender involved. Community is, they're suffering because they don't know when their parents are gonna be picked up and swept away from them. And kids are being gassed at our border. How can this be happening still? So. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you, you shouldn't be sorry because it is happening. And I think that I have faith that the pendulum swings back, but it swings back at a faster rate because of people like you, Joyce, because you're out there fighting. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an amazing, an amazing life that you've had. I know you keep saying you're, you know, just this little person, but, and I don't want to minimize your experience at all by comparing this because it's meant in the kindest way, but I keep thinking of Forrest Gump who, you know, had this arc of a life in the movie where he kept walking into history. And I right. feel like you have witnessed the 20th and 21st century better than anybody I could possibly think of. Well, how lucky can I be? But the other half is that I'm lucky because I'm an artist now. And, um, you know, I, for years I worked among the Amish because my, my father was blacklisted and he took over his father's business. And for years I worked among the Amish who couldn't care less who I was or what I was. They were so non-judgmental. And so I could walk up to them in my jeans and hand them their clothing, you know, and, and, and go from place to place. And I could do what I wanted to after a while and, you know, and, 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 and make the kind of life that I wanted. But how lucky it is, am I to, to have landed in Lake Worth for the time being to still have a studio so that I can, and to be able to kids to do it. That's what, that's what I love the most, is to be able to give kids skills that will make their lives better. I caught the bug for that a little bit when I had my studio in Garnerville. We had fifth graders come in and, and see the different disciplines, you know, and I was yeah. the photography studio they went to, and I absolutely love that and want to do more of that. So we're going to have to talk yeah. about how we can make that happen. And you've got the workshop space in the front of the studio. Yeah. I'm, I'm all in for anything we oh, can good, do. Good. That's so we'll, good. we'll talk more about that. So we did spend quite a while on the arc of your life, which is great and I'm glad we have it documented because we need to and we need to do that with more of the amazing artists that have come through here and live here and we were talking about that earlier so that's yeah, a project we're yeah. going to take on yeah that's good I'm happy to be involved in that uh, what I would like to swing back to is um, a little bit of the easy side of Lake Worth what makes it we've already talked about the what makes it special so what are some of the places you like to go? Who are some of the people you like to see around town? Oh, that's so, you know what? I come down here every day, every day, seven days a week, and I go to, from the studio to the gallery. I almost never go much further than that because, <laughs> but, but people come to us mm -hmm. and that's so exciting. So who do I, I love J Street. I love all of the people on J Street. I want to advocate for J Street. And I'm just so delighted that the bookstore moved to our corner because what, what wonderful what people there. 
What a I mean, amazing. great shop. And they actually, it's an independently owned building, so we, we don't think it's going to get lost. I adore Common Grounds people. I think they're absolutely amazing. Broody's. And, and revelry, they're incredible people. They're just, they're just great people. And I'm waiting to see what happens in that bamboo room because, because it's good. But what we have is this wide open street that somebody chooses to block off, but I want to see it opened up because I want festivals on that street. I want, so I, I, you know, during Martin Luther King, I spoke to Reggie. For, she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Let's get a Haitian thing out here every other month. Let's do a Haitian festival on J Street. I, I talked to my friend over there. He's so overwhelmed with what he does. Pedro, can you do a Mayan festival every other month? On, you know, come on. You're about to be roped in, pal. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this and wake up this town. What I've seen in town over the last year, which which frightens me is that there's a lack of traffic in town. It suddenly has disappeared. And I want to see that traffic back in town. And I want the town to belong to everybody in the town. I'm not answering your question. I love Jerusha. She just moved to town. Isn't she awesome? I love Jerusha. She's, she's phenomenal. And, you know, another young person, you know, it's who the other it. end of the spread. Who the really other, gets, who gets the city. It. And she can grow with this because she's at this other end of this age spectrum, you know, that some of us are aging out of. And uh, Tom, oh my gosh, he comes to everything, goes everywhere. And if I don't make it, I can go online and see his pictures and actually be in the middle of this whole thing. You know, Pedro and Marshall come in all of the time. They're welcome to spread their stuff out and make that street a little more lively. But they're such good people. They're such good people. They really are. All of the artists that are in my gallery now are amazing because none of them give me grief. And that's a real... As a gallery owner, that's, that's a real trick. Well, I'm not a gallery... Because we're, we're a flaky... Well, that's okay. true. I'm not a gallery owner. We, okay, but I, you run that I, gallery. I run it. But, you know, what I'm looking for are the younger folks who can take it over eventually. I want those teenagers like I was, to feel a passion about something that will last them all of their lives and take this thing over and make it happen. You know, that's, you know I want to give it to them, mm -hmm. you know, to take over. Now, our theory is that nobody, sh you know, everybody there should be earn a earning a living, but nobody should be paid to run it. So whatever we design in there, is to give people, artists, a chance to, to earn money. Working artists to make money. I don't want artists. It's just like when we hire a musician. We want them to be paid for what they do because art is valuable and their labor is valuable. That's my labor background. Their labor is valuable. They need to earn a living. Now, I don't need to because I'm on Social Security. So I, you know, <laughs> I don't need... I get a check every unless the government is shut down. I get I get my little check every month, so I don't need to earn it. So whatever is left over there will help pay to make this thing happen. But um, but they do. So you know, in starting these workshops, for instance, you're going to meet some really amazing folks in there, and they're very talented, and they will get seventy percent of whatever they produce, and thirty percent will pay our rent, maybe. 
maybe. That sounds and like that's an what, ideal And situation. that's what we want. And, you know, as opposed to people being paid in other places like $5 for every student they bring in. So they may be making $15 an hour. I'm really hoping our artists are making at least $50 an hour. I'm really hoping for that if they get enough people. And that's what I'm aiming for there. The studio, we have a group of, of really wonderful young women who are homeless in there, and they're making mugs. Their goal is to sell 100 mugs a month, and they're meeting their goal. They're actually meeting their goal. That means they can pay themselves salaries and maybe get homes for themselves, you know, get a place to live for a change. That's what I am looking for. That's what that's what that's I see. That's what I see. That's what I see. That's what I see art doing for for people in a community. And when we teach something, I don't want to teach something that won't give them a skill. I want everybody to gain some kind of skill from anything that they do with us, so that their life is better, even if they're not an artist. Their life is better because of art. So. Well, and I think that's absolutely perfect, and it rolls right into okay. what you're talking about with the the Mayan festivals too. Yeah. In that it exposes the people that don't that live here that don't get enough chance to interact with that culture, a chance to see it, become comfortable with it. Because once you're comfortable, the barriers go down, yeah. and you become even more of a community. And you add to that getting that group over on this side of Dixie and not afraid to be here. And everybody wins in that situation. I'm you know, hoping. I, I, oh, I'm I, hoping. I am hoping to, and I think that it really should work out. I think that it's the right model for it. That was pretty amazing. <laughs> I, 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 could sit and, I could just sit and listen to you talk about the things that you've been through and the things that you've seen, Joyce, all night. So we could have done that without even talking about Lake Worth, but this no, is where Lake we, Worth is amazing. This is where we live and it's amazing. I never thought that I would get to this point in my life and live this close to the ocean and yet it be affordable and have this community. We're very fortunate to have found a place where so many people get that you get back so much more when you give. And it shows in so many ways in and around the city. It's a really kind of magical place. I'm becoming a little bit of a cheerleader for it just because yeah. I can't stop talking about it. The biggest cheerleader is Mary. Well, Mary the Energizer Bunny. Who that's true. never stops. Joe Francis. I didn't mention him. Do you know who Joe Francis no. is? Joe Francis is the one who wants to light up Lake Worth. And he's the one that, that helped us. Marshall and, and, and Pedro worked on this to get our lights up and down our street. And he's, he put them over where Andy used to be. He's got them over at Brogues. A, an Art Deco town is a town that always had neon in it. You know, neon is part of Art Deco. Well, we had a neon artist for a while, but if you're not going to do neon, you might as well line everything with lights. Our, you know, when we had our business association in town for a while, that was, that was our whole job was to, to light from the, the circle all the way down to the bridge and back again. And we could still do that, so, but, but you can't do it with just one person. You need groups of people, like the little libraries. You need groups of people that want to light up a town. So Joe is there, and he's got the skill, and he wants to do this. He just can't do it by himself. So if anyone's listening, like, like the light up, like, like, light up Lake, Lake Worth, what is the, the Facebook page, you know, and, and 
get working on this. You know, there's so much we can do in this town. And we need to light up the town so people, when people drive down to go to the beach, they see us. You know? I think I think there's that is one thing is that the the spirit of the people that come here, we are driven to start projects, yeah. and we almost have too many of them going at one time, right. independent of each other, so that we need to pick which ones we're going to do and work together on them. And if I work on yours, you'll work on mine later. Well, that that's true. But just think of all of the thousands of people that actually live here. Every one of them could have a full committee and working on a project and get it done. That's actually, true too. instead of splitting up. You know the same people on everything, right? It certainly doesn't you know, have to be the same you sort 50 of, people because you, so, you, you water it down after a while, and you want it done well. Mary does her work so well. I mean, if she weren't so focused on these little libraries, you know, they wouldn't happen. She, she's her focus makes them happen and draws all of these people to her, and you know, it, if the other thing is, if first, if at first you don't succeed, try something different. Because if you do the same thing over and over again, that's the definition of insanity. So figure out a way to make something happen. That's why we've changed the front of the gallery around. You know, let's do something that will actually affect people and make it work for them. You know, if the other one's not working, let's try something else. We have that luxury. We can do it. And we, we certainly have to be less afraid of failure in our lives. I think the failure is a great learning tool. Yeah. Um, you know, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and say, okay, that part didn't work, but most of the moving parts work, and I know that for the next time. Right, and how you many know. times did Edison do it before he got the light bulb? You yeah. Know, we numerous, don't count as failures. Times. We don't count Einstein's failures. We only count the successes. A lot of failures around. The road along the, ray, the way, and it's, sometimes yeah. it's bumpy, and uh, you keep going, and, you know, if your ultimate goal is to do some good and let everything else just kind of happen, you can't go wrong. So I think that's, okay. um, before I ask Joyce the questions, does anybody have a question for Joyce? And it's okay if you don't because, you know, we've been at this for a little while. Well, yes, I okay. have about 10,000 what I've heard of your story tonight, I had only heard and, and knew such tiny little pieces of that. And just like Carl, look, I have to hear you for, you know, like in three hour clips at a time to be able to take all of that in. What an amazing, amazing, wonderful life you've created and been a part of. Yeah. Except for the series of unfortunate events. <laughs> And, and they, and they were there. Failures. They're just yeah. where you learned what doesn't work. Yeah. And that's yeah. important information. Yeah. And in the grand scheme of things, we remember the, the great moments and the hard ones. They kind of get a little bit fuzzier as you go along, which is good. And it's the yeah. way we're built and the way it's yeah. supposed to happen. Yeah. These are the questions that James <laughs> Lipton used on Inside the Actor's Studio. He borrowed them from the French interviewer Bernard Pivot, who borrowed them from Marcel Proust. Now, Proust didn't come up with them, but he answered them as a teenager, so that's how he's on this list. And I always liked this part of the actor's studio. I liked watching this, and so that's why we've, we're including this now. Okay, so Joyce, what is your favorite word? Peace. Peace, I love it. What is your least favorite word? War. 
for? What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Clay. Clay. What turns you off? Fascism. What is your favorite curse word? Shitty-ass rat fuck. Well, I might have to take out the bleep on that one, but I'm <laughs> going to leave it as it is for now. What sound or noise do you love? The ocean. What sound or noise do you hate? High-pitched screech. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, string theory. Physics. I bet you could do it, too. No. <laughs> you have to be smart to do that. What profession would you not like to do? What profession would I not like to do? Uh, probably cleaning sewers. That's fair. And the final question, if heaven exists, what would you like, hear, like to hear God say when you get to the pearly gates? Well, for me, that's a non-starter because I can't even imagine. I'm, I'm, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. I can't even imagine that being a question. But if God were Pete Seeger, I'd like him to say welcome. Good enough. I like it. <laughs> okay. With that, I'd like to thank Joyce for taking time to be on the interview. As part of the I Am Lake Worth podcast, I have to give a shout-out to Common Grounds once again for Absolutely. sponsoring these events. They're always there with the coffee, and any way I need help, they're always happy to do it. I have to thank the CRA and Hatch 1121 for providing this amazing space to have the show in. Not only did we have that amazing, amazing opening night here, but we have the space for the entire month, and I get to do these interviews. And actually, there are some that aren't open that I'm scheduling with other people who are in the project that will be future podcasts as well. So it gives me a space to do that work without saying, hey, come over to my house and I'll record you. <laughs> so with that, I also want to thank uh, you guys for coming out tonight. Thank we had you. an audience, and that's really, really great. And thank, thank you. you. And, and thank you, Joyce. Thank you.